Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome in. Good Friday to you. Means outkick the culture here. Welcome. I'm Jason Martin, your host on Twitter at jmartoutkick. Always good to have you with us in the audience. If you're somebody out there that feels like spending money or paying me, give me a call. Some sponsors hopefully going to be lined up here soon, as well as music. Eventually, that's actually going to happen. It's becoming kind of a running joke, but trust me, it is coming. I said last week, this week was going to be heavy, heavy, heavy on BoJack Horseman. And guess what? This week is going to be heavy, heavy, heavy on BoJack Horseman. We're going to go through all three of the seasons that have aired or that have been released, and then the fourth one actually released today. So I will give you my full review of the season without spoiling some of the more important plot points because, in particular, one thing, if it gets spoiled for you, is going to wreck a lot of the season, I do believe. And that may be the first time that I could say that about BoJack, even as deep as this series has been uh, for quite some time. I'm going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about it which released today and is poised to become the biggest and most lucrative September release in box office history. And after seeing it, it's well worth the hype, quite frankly. So we will discuss that as well. Those are going to be the two main topics. Also, we will discuss the end of Veep, which we found out about just yesterday that the next season of Veep is going to be the final season. For Veep, we'll discuss the pros and cons of that and why I think it's probably a great decision for that series. But as promised, here we go. Bojack Horseman came back today for its fourth season. Raphael Bob Waxberg brings his series back to Netflix. Seasons two and three, two of the more critically acclaimed seasons of television this decade. And if you started to watch BoJack Horseman, well, actually, I'm going to back up. I have to sell BoJack and Rick and Morty harder than any other show. I know, I know. Everybody's heard about Rick and Morty now, and you're probably tired of it. It's now becoming a refrain. Like, yes, I'm going to watch it, and I'll get off my back about it. I've watched it from the beginning because Dan Harmon interested me because of what he did with Community and some of the other things that he had been doing, but... Rick and Morty turned out to be a much deeper show as it got along. It took a few episodes really to kind of get there. And then once it decided where it was headed, it became a very rewarding, rich, deep, dark experience, despite the fact that it was animated. And that's where I want to be because there is always going to be a certain group of people that will refuse to watch BoJack Horseman or watch Rick and Morty or watch Bob's Burgers, or Archer, or Futurama, or King of the Hill, or whatever other you know animated show, Animals on HBO, whatever it is, they're not going to watch it because it's a damn cartoon. They need to, these people are never going to get it. I can tell them till I'm blue in the face that BoJack Horseman has some of the best drama and some of the best storytelling anywhere on television that the ad campaign for the second season of BoJack Horseman 
was a very dark shot of Bojack's, Bojack's face with other characters that are similar to him in either tone, style, or execution. Those characters including Frank Underwood, Don Draper, Walter White. That is the company Bojack Horseman keeps. Yes, he's a horse that walks upright and Will Arnett voices him. But I don't know that people fully grasp that just because it's animated doesn't mean the storytelling's not good. All of your favorite books, Newsflash, aren't real. Unless they're nonfiction, obviously. But all those fiction books aren't real. And whatever you're conjuring up in your head while you're reading J.K. Rowling or you're reading Stieg Larsson or you're reading even the classics, Emily Bronte or whatever, those characters are just about as fictitious as anything that you're going to see. It doesn't matter if it's drawn or it's acted. If the story is good, the story is good. Fiction does not depend upon live action or human actors. It depends upon the strength of the narrative, the strength of the plot, the strength of the writing. Does it make you feel something? Does it make you think? Does it make you give a shit? I have grown so tired of trying to sell the BoJack Horsemans of the world to a crowd that is just too narrow-minded to accept that what they think is normal may in fact not be, and even if it is normal, the concept of normal doesn't mean a damn thing in the context of fiction. Many of you listening to this podcast right now already well understand this and have enjoyed Rick and Morty and BoJack Horseman and Bob's Burgers and all these shows for a long time. But there are some people right now listening to this podcast, rolling their eyes. They're like, oh my God, he's going to talk about a cartoon for a half hour. Well, you're damn right I'm going to talk about a cartoon for the half, for a half hour. I'm going to talk about one of the three or four best shows on all of TV for the next half hour. A show that if you have not watched it on Netflix, it is arguable that you have missed the single best experience of a Netflix original available on the entire damn service. The list, look. Netflix is the unquestioned king right now of original programming. You can point to HBO, and HBO certainly has a lot of quality. But nobody is putting out per capita just the amount of shows that Netflix is putting out. And yes, some of them some of them are trash. Santa Clarita Diet, that's trash. Iron Fist was trash. Everything's subjective. But if you look at just the quantity and actually the quality of most of what Netflix puts out, Narcos, Bojack, Orange is the New Black, Glow, for some Grace and Frankie, obviously the Marvel series for a large contingent of folks, and we just got the Defenders, but we've already gotten four original series, three of which at least were good, and a second season that was sort of half and half for Daredevil. House of Cards, even though I think that show's been on a tailspin now for over a year, But another example, obviously The Crown, which is maybe the best pure drama on Netflix. Aziz Ansari's Master of None. All of these, and that's not even to mention the exclusive stand-up comedy specials, the documentaries, Making a Murderer, for example, as biased as it was, and many other things of that ilk and that sort. But BoJack Horseman, despite the fact that it's drawn draws upon real life and touches upon the bleakness that can exist within the psyche of damaged people searching for self-worth 
searching for purpose and engaging in self-sabotage. It doesn't matter that it's drawn. It matters that it's good. And that's why I'm going to discuss it for the next half hour. And if you're one of those folks that is listening to this and it's just going in one ear and out the other, I feel sorry for you because you're missing a great experience. Season one of BoJack Horseman began in August of 2014. I say began. It was all released on the same day. And the first half of the season was much different than the second half of the season. It was also much different than anything we've seen since from the show. But in a way, I think it was necessary as pure entertainment. When you watch the first five or six episodes of BoJack Horseman, you see a show that is trying to be funny and trying to be clever and really heavy on the animal puns, which stick throughout and are very, very necessary, I think, just to balance out how dark the show gets. But even in the third episode, you see a troubled child star in Sarah Lynn, voice of Kristen Shaw. And if you want to compare Horsin' Around, which is BoJack's sitcom where he was sort of the father figure to these three children, it's more of a full house kind of show. And Sarah Lynn is kind of presented as Lindsay Lohan, but with a bit of Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen sprinkled into it. She was a young child, and you see flashbacks in subsequent episodes where Sarah Lynn is a feature, where she's being mistreated by her older co-stars, where she's actually a pretty innocent child, but she just wasn't ready for the trappings of fame. How many stories have we seen in Hollywood of that very thing? How many e-true Hollywood stories back when that was really a thing, and some of those were damn good, I really enjoyed them. How many of those stories have we seen? of these actors that were not what they appeared and were not well-adjusted and could not handle it. Dana Plato, way back on different strokes and her eating disorders. Many, actually, stars Tracy Gold and Growing Pains and her anorexia. Drug problems for all sorts of folks. Dustin Diamond and some of the folks from Saved by the Bell and their adjustment trouble. You are throwing something innocent into a world that they're not fully prepared to inhabit. They don't know what to do with the money. The parents are sometimes gravy training in the same way that the idiot father and mother that scream at every child on the field and refuse to actually discipline their own kid while he's acting like a complete asshole playing peewee football do. Or the ones that do nothing but chastise their kid and make them feel terrible and make them hate the sport that they might otherwise have loved. Because it's no longer actually playing a sport. It's working a sport, even though you're not getting paid. And you're probably still not going to make it if you look at the percentages. So the Sarah Lynn story actually begins in the third episode. And we see all of her problems right then and there. But that's a story that's been told before. That's not necessarily original. And even the way Raphael Bob Waxberg and the writers approach it, it's still kind of that way. Second episode... Bojack gets into it over a muffin at a grocery store, has to apologize, but doesn't mean it, says something defamatory about the troops. That puts him in the crosshairs of the media. Again, not necessarily original, but a good description, a good depiction of the kinds of things that happen to celebrities. And then, of course, you know, years later, we saw Ariana Grande in a donut shop, for example. But at its essence, the first five or six episodes are somewhat standalone. We're getting to know the characters. We're getting to know Amy Sedaris's Princess Carolyn. 
the agent slash manager slash sometimes love interest or at least lover of Bojack Horseman, the pink cat that works at Vigor. We get to know Todd Chavez, basically the squatter in Bojack's house, but somebody that aspires to try and be more, voiced by Aaron Paul, who's also an executive producer on the show. And we meet Diane and Gwen. Allison Bree does that voice, who ends up being the ghostwriter for Bojack's memoir, or a book about Bojack more so. She doesn't seem to be quite as anonymous as many ghostwriters are. And her love interest, Mr. Peanut Butter, a yellow lab voiced by Paul F. Tompkins that is relentlessly optimistic and smiles and is dumb as hell and is just a joy to watch. Mr. Peanut Butter is my favorite character on the show, kind of always has been. And we've even seen depth from him in subsequent subsequent seasons. But as we've gotten to know these characters in that first six episodes, we were getting to know these characters. A lot of this was jokes and puns and let's get familiar with the way this style is done and, and all of this. And then all of a sudden there's just a shift. After the episode where Bojack steals the D from the Hollywood sign, which leads to Hollywood sticking around after the fact, after, after he steals the D for Diane, who he's kind of dealing with romantic feelings for, we sense a change in this show and the way that it's done. We knew this would be a satire of Hollywood. What I don't think we necessarily understood is that it would be a treatise on self-sabotage and on the past informing the present. If there's one thing that's always been true about BoJack Horseman, it's that the negatives in your past, particularly how you treat people and the experiences and more so the mistakes that you make, aren't insurmountable but they're longer lasting than the positives. Think about it. The win during the regular season doesn't mean as much as the loss. In general, you can overcome a negative, but a positive is fleeting. If you wake up on Christmas morning, and this is going to be this is going to sound like straight hashtag first world problems, but just think about it as an analogy. If you're superficial or materialistic, And you get up on Christmas morning and you go downstairs and you open all your gifts. And there was one thing on that list that was the most, the thing you wanted the absolute most, and it's not there. What are you going to think after you open all those gifts? Are you going to be playing with those Legos? Are you going to be playing with those Lincoln Logs or the Paw Patrol action figures or whatever it is? Or are you going to be pining after that bike you didn't get? Unfortunately, it's probably the latter. If it's a piece of electronics, maybe even worse. Man, I didn't get that switch. That was all I really wanted. All this other stuff. I mean, I care about all this stuff too because I'm a kid and I make a a list. But, man, Santa didn't bring me a Nintendo Switch this year. He didn't bring me that Super NES Classic I was looking for. That's a bummer. It's sad that that's true, but it's true. The negatives usually outweigh the positives. They stick with you. They're harder to overcome. It's harder to overcome something than it is to celebrate something. I'm terrible at taking compliments. When you guys send me emails or send me DMs saying nice stuff about me or this show or 
uh, how much you enjoy my writing, I always send back something similar. I always say thank you so much for the kind words and the time it took to, to send this. Not going anywhere. We're just expanding. Glad you're enjoying everything. But I really don't know how to take it. Like, I believe it, but even when you give me a Christmas gift, I it's an awkward thank you as much as it means to me that you gave it to me. It's just harder to deal with for me. Overcoming something bad enables you to play the victim. And there are people in this world that live to play the victim, whether that's because they're trying to be outraged about certain things that are happening in society or because they eternally like to play woe is me guy or woe is me gal. There are those that will not allow themselves to be happy despite all evidence to the contrary. And then there are self-sabotagers, where Bojack fits, where Diane begins to fit, where even Princess Carolyn, to some extent, fits, and Todd, from time to time, fits. But in the end, the show is about Bojack and how he interacts with his world and how he tries to overcome a brain that will not shut off. So we get through the rest of the first season. We find out that the man behind Horsin' Around, which is a show from the 90s, long since gone, but a stand-up comic that kind of worked in the same clubs that BoJack had worked in early in his career and, and came up with the idea for Horsin' Around and got him cast in it, has rectal cancer and is struggling. We also see that BoJack betrayed him because he basically was in a situation where he didn't have the power to say no to the network when they wanted to get rid of Herb Kazaz, who, of course, is the guy that I'm talking about here. We see Bojack kiss Diane, which becomes very awkward because Diane's involved with Mr. Peanut Butter. And we see everybody trying to find work that is fulfilling. And that struggle to find fulfillment on a long-term basis, is one of the things that drives the two and now the three seasons that have followed for BoJack Horseman. The second season of BoJack takes us deeper into the professional life of this guy, of this horse, but it also begins to really unravel just what a disaster his personal life is how lonely he is, how his answer to most of his problems is to throw a party or get shit-faced or take a bunch of drugs or disappear. And some of the more powerful moments of BoJack Horseman are when BoJack is empty in his own house and all we're seeing, although it's animated, is him cleaning up an empty house or him just sitting there or occasionally, once in particular, sobbing his eyes out. He wants love. He wants to care. He talks later about how, you know, I I love you as much as I can love anything, which is not enough. But he ends up making that trip to New Mexico to see Charlotte, the deer that had been part of his previous life back there in the comedy clubs. And we had seen this Charlotte character a couple of different times, but we we kind of assumed that she was a bigger part of his life than she actually was. And we, we actually continue to believe that until we find out otherwise from her, kind of in a soliloquy 
in one of the season's final episodes and one of its strongest and probably the darkest moment, perhaps, that we've ever seen from the, from the series. When he goes to New Mexico and he's going to pledge his love for her and he finds out that she's married and she has a daughter. And not only that, but they didn't know each other for very long. It was just a couple of months, but he sort of put it into his head and fantasized like it was a long-standing, one of the most important things in his entire life because he's got nothing else to grasp onto. And when obviously she's not going to divorce her husband and really doesn't have the romantic interest at that stage, he ends up in a compromising situation with her daughter. Although nothing happens, he even asked himself after the fact, would something have happened if she hadn't walked in, if her mom hadn't walked in? And that, of course, is the end of that friendship, that relationship for, for Bojack. Charlotte is no more. Another person, another memory, ruined, spoiled, and gone, and he can only point to himself for all of that. Meanwhile, Todd's trying to find, whether it's a job or a, it's usually a get-rich-quick scheme. He and Mr. Peanut Butter have hatched up, and there's a lot of comedy involved there. Mr. Peanut Butter provides a lot of comedy and sometimes some darkness because his marriage with Diane is very imperfect because these people are so amazingly different. I say these people, but this woman and this dog are so different. Diane is one of those that I think enjoys playing the victim at least until she realizes it, and then she actually is looking for something different. Mr. Peanut Butter's just an optimist. He's smiling, and even though we do see some darkness from him in season two, particularly the game show episode where he and Bojack have it out over Diane, it just kind of continues to go down a rather dark path for all of the main characters. And Princess Carolyn is an agent, but she's an agent that is still sort of struggling to get where it is that she's trying to get. She's an agent, but she's not the top agent. She's jealous of Vanessa Gecko, for example. And all of these things kind of drive the mistakes that she makes and the rash decisions that she makes. But the second season of BoJack from start to finish is incredibly strong and varied and deep and important on a number of different levels in terms of storytelling and in terms of just providing an extra few layers that you just don't expect from an animated show. See, look, even me saying it. I know it's an animated show, and you just do sort of expect certain things from an animated show, and you just don't get those the way that you would in many cases. You still expect that they're going to take the lowest common denominator route or the humor route, and sometimes they do. But on BoJack, it's rare. That's not generally the point. You do have a great voice cast from the very beginning, but it continues to grow. Alan Arkin, Daniel Radcliffe, Margot Martindale, who's just phenomenal in her kind of semi-recurring character, Jessica Biel that shows up in season three as a former wife of Mr. Peanut Butter. And she actually, I won't go into detail, but she's excellent in season four as she makes a return for a couple of very important episodes in terms of the larger story of season four. But BoJack 
in this constant struggle to find purpose and to find self-fulfillment. Nearly sleeps with a teenager, buys a boat on a whim, disappears, has it out with virtually every character in his life at different times, ruins a pretty good relationship with an owl, voice of Lisa Kudrow, Wanda Pierce, who had been in a coma for 30 years. She's great, by the way. Kudrow's really talented. If you didn't know that, you should. Of all six of the people on Friends, she might be the most talented that gets the least respect. Like, you don't think about her when you think of Friends first. You usually are going to think of Rachel and Ross. And look, Jennifer Aniston's done a lot of great stuff in her career. Matt LeBlanc, and, you know, he's gone on to do episodes, and he's done pretty well for himself. David Schwimmer has had moments, certainly, in his career, and has kind of at times gone away from acting and looked into some other pretty worthy causes, quite frankly. Courtney Cox has decided that she's going to stop doing whatever she's done to her face. That's a good change. Matthew Perry has struggled, but he's had a couple of I enjoyed Mr. Sunshine, even though it didn't make it. But Kudrow has been able to play drama. She's been able to play dits. She's been able to play comedy. She's been able to play it all at one time. The comeback being a prime example, certainly. So she plays Wanda, and she plays Wanda with with kind of a little bit of Phoebe in her and kind of a little bit of the drama side in her because there's a sadness inside of Wanda as well. But in general, Wanda's just a good person and Bojack can't handle a good person in his life. He pushes her away. He finds a way to ruin something that didn't need to be ruined. He overthinks it and he blows it. Again, the happiness of Bojack Horseman is usually short-lived. But the pain usually sticks around even if it comes back a season or two later in a flashback. Bojack's dream his entire life was to be or to play Secretariat, who was his hero. Secretariat voiced by John Krasinski, who you may know as Jim Halpert from The Office. He finally gets that chance. We find that out near the end of the season. And then we move to season three, and season three is the Secretariat season, where he's going on press junkets, and he goes underneath the sea in an episode called fish out of water which was the single best episode of any type of fictional television in 2016 where there was almost no dialogue because he was underwater and didn't realize that his helmet allowed had a button on it that allowed him to speak because we didn't hear him speak we also didn't hear anything else we just heard a whole lot of charlie brown's teachers for 25 to 30 for 25 minutes and we spent time with bojack hanging out with a baby seahorse trying to get it back to its father after the father births it inside of a bus. And we also see him deal with the then-fired director of Secretariat, somebody that he had come to know and, and really kind of appreciate and respect on a professional and a personal level, and a sad ending to that as he tries to reconcile with her and can't because he's underwater and the note that he writes smears and she never actually gets to read the nice things that he said about her. There's good comedy in that episode. There's extremely good drama and almost no words in the entire 25 minutes. It is just an experience. And it's something you just don't see. Like, I rewatched everything. Like, in the run-up this week, I watched all four seasons just in a row. That was my week in terms of what I watched fiction-wise. I'm screening the deuce, obviously. not. I've already seen the first episode. We talked about that last week, but HBO sent me eight 
So I'm going to be doing a lot more of that. Atypical is something I wanted to talk about this week. We're going to have to push that to next week because BoJack just took so much of my time and so much of my interest. September 8th is an interesting day because BoJack's going to come out and a lot of people are just going to shrug their shoulders and not understand that BoJack coming out should be, should be bigger than House of Cards releasing or most anything on Netflix releasing. Last two weeks for Netflix have been gangbusters, folks. Narcos Season 3, I don't know how many people have written to me since my review to tell me I was spot on that Season 3 is actually the best of the three and that the show is better without Pablo Escobar, as great as Wagner Moore is. That's what I told you last week, that the story, because you don't know it as well and because there's various villains and each one of them sort of reacts in a different way. And because we got rid of Boyd Holbrook and we were able to just kind of spend so much more time with Pedro Pascal, that the show is just simply better now. It is just a superior effort. But to go from a brilliant season of Narcos to the new season of BoJack Horseman is about as good a one-two punch as you're going to get from anybody, including Netflix. And they've got a lot of heavy hitters still to come later this year. And we'll be talking about a lot of them. But House of Cards is something people took off work when it released back in the summer. BoJack, they probably won't. And look, it's a 30-minute show. And I say 30, but episodes are about 25 minutes each. It's a little over six-hour binge. And I would actually suggest in this case, for season four, that it might not be as good a binge as some of the previous years. Because as we get to season four, well, you know what, I'll explain it in a minute. Let's finish up with season three. So he goes underwater and the whole thing's about Secretariat and him potentially being nominated for an Oscar, which turns out not to go in his favor after it's revealed that the Oscars aren't legitimate. Not the Oscar awards, but the nomination procedures. Mr. Peanut Butter's involved in that because of course he is. And he and Todd kind of find a way to blow it. But during season three, Bojack and Todd have a real falling out. One thing I didn't mention about season two was a really just fun kind of breakdown of Scientology in the last couple of episodes where Scientology is sort of winked and nodded at and is replaced by improv comedy, which is funny because a lot of people think improv is lame as hell. But the way it's done is as if it's Scientology, even with its own L. Ron Hubbard figure and its, and its own boat and its own Sea Org and all of that. It's so well executed, but it's done in a way, it's done in a way where, you know, Trey Parker and Matt Stone probably stood up and applauded when they saw the way Bojack handled it. And Bojack's not afraid to wade into some social issues. Season two, they dealt with animal rights with the chicken episode. Season three with Aquafina. They do the abortion thing. And it's more impressive for Bojack because although I'm pretty sure I know the ideological bent of Raphael Bob Waxberg and certainly of the cast of the show in large standing, they do present both sides of an issue. Diane is anti-gun control or she's she's very anti-gun until she actually puts her hands on a gun and then she has to stop and think about it again and likes the idea of feeling safe. That, to me, is refreshing. I know where they stand, and I know where they're going to lean on these things. I know where they're going to poke fun first, but they are willing to tackle it from different sides. 
And really, that's enough for me. Fourth season of BoJack is way more political than two, three, and one put together. But in our climate, I guess it makes sense, especially with one of the storylines that they choose to go with, which is not so subtly a shot at our current president. We get more from the Kazaz storyline as he dies in season three. And then right at the tail end of season three, we wave goodbye to Sarah Lynn as she passes away after a drug fuel bender with Bojack and things that went entirely wrong. And the end of season three, after Secretariat's success, despite the lack of nomination, Bojack disappears. Last scene of season three, in stark contrast to the optimism of season two, where there's been kind of a metaphor going all season long where a baboon continues to run up the very steep hill in front of Bojack's mansion in California, and Bojack attempts to run it a couple of different times and stops because he's just so out of shape in his 50s. Eventually, the guy just he eventually falls at the end of season two, and the guy standing over him says, look, you just got to keep doing it. It's going to get easier every day, but you've just got to keep doing it. A metaphor for life, a metaphor for an optimistic feel. Season three, we see Bojack on his own, basically in the desert, looking at a bunch of wild horses running with abandon together. And he looks out among them as if to say, I wish I was that carefree. And that's the end of the season. So there was not necessarily the optimism of season two at the end of season three. And season four begins, and if you saw any of the ad campaigns or any of the teaser posters or any of that stuff, you saw a poster that said, where's Bojack? Almost like, where's Waldo? Because no one knows where Bojack is. And by no one, I mean none of the characters that we know and love have any idea where Bojack Horseman is. As a matter of fact, he disappears for over a year. First episode is basically no Bojack at all. We see a lot of Mr. Peanut Butter and the early storyline, and it carries through pretty much throughout the season is he's decided he wants to run for governor, and he's an idiot celebrity who doesn't really have any positions on anything but takes the popular line based on what sort of the cast of characters around him tell him to do. And by the cast of characters, I don't mean our primaries, but one of his ex-wives that's a political... I don't know, almost an image consultant kind of folk, but there's not really Steve Bannon, but there's people around Mr. Peanut Butter that are sort of driving his opinions. And even if you look at the like slogan on the at Bojack Horseman Twitter account, Mr. Peanut Butter says, I believe in your facts and your feelings. Basically, all everything, whatever you want. So again, uh, definitely a nod to Trump because Peanut Butter is inept and he says a bunch of dumb stuff. But he's likable to a certain swath. Actually, Mr. Peanut Butter is infinitely likable in general, as opposed, I think, to the inhabitant of the White House in most cases. But that becomes one of the major storylines, and it brings in Andre Brower from Homicide Life on the Street and Men of a Certain Age in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And Andre Brower is great as he joins this voice cast as sort of the political rival, the Woodchuck. Woodchuck, Kudchuck, Berkowitz, to be example, or to be... uh, exact who's his political rival and the current governor of california so mr peanut butter's arc pretty much the whole year is trying to be governor and his wife diane is writing for a blog a female-centric blog and we see sort of a satire on the blog culture and you know her writing on top of a 
Pilates ball at times or you know some kind of a skipo or, or something to that extent. We see all of that. It's the stuff we've seen lampooned before in like Silicon Valley and even Veep with the turd in the cloud line from a few years ago from Selena Meyer. So Diane and Mr. Peanut Butter end up at odds because of fracking. They end up at odds because of guns and things like that. But in general, we start to see a real rift develop inside that marriage. And that's the darkness of that side of the story. Mr. Peanut Butter and Woodchuck provide maybe the best comedy of the year. We don't get nearly as much of Mr. Peanut Butter and Todd this year as we have in the past. And that's fine. Like Todd's probably my least favorite character because the stuff they do with him is so over the top and outlandish. Like I'd like to compare him to Andy Dwyer from Parks and Recreation, Chris Pratt's character, but I can't because Andy's stuff was so much fun and Todd sometimes just wades too far into the absurd and it sort of rings false for me. This year he probably takes his most outlandish turn ever, but they also explore his asexuality and how he's just decided he's nothing when he can't uh, be with Emily. And certainly he knows he's not gay. So he's dealing with that side of his life. And he's also still trying to be Todd, trying to find worth in something that he's doing in his life. And it leads him to a very interesting conclusion, which, you know, it sort of worked and sort of didn't for me. And I think that's the case of season four as a whole, as a matter of fact. Season four of BoJack Horseman's probably, it might be the deepest the show has ever been. It certainly is in terms of self-awareness of characters by the end of it. But it's the least entertaining since the first year. And that's not really a slight because BoJack Horseman is not necessarily there to entertain in a fun way consistently. The jokes, the animation, the animal puns, all of that stuff has always existed to balance out just how bleak this show's outlook is and how sad this show can be. Because this show would be almost unwatchably dark if it weren't for that balance. So you're able to put it in this zany world and do these crazy things because that makes all of the black palatable. But the fourth season is so bleak. Even in its past, we go decades back into the past, discover how Beatrice Horseman, Bojack's mother, became the shrew that she became later in her life we see a daydream into the future where princess carolyn is is looking fondly into a future that won't ever happen just to escape the problems she's having in her current life we see her in a relationship for much of the year we see bojack not in any kind of a relationship at all during the year in terms of a romantic relationship We meet a relative of Bojack's who I'm not going to go into any detail this week about because it is by far the biggest part of the entire year. It carries forth from early in the year all the way to the final five seconds of the season. And it involves a reveal in the end and a story as to where this person came from and who this person is. Well, not person, but this relative of Bojack's. I'm not going to tell you the voice actress. I'm not going to tell you anything about it yet. Because I think it's a disservice, and I wrote this in my article at Outkick.com. I think it's a disservice to you as a viewer to tell you anything more than I just did. And I think it's a disservice, and it's unfair to Raphael Bob Waxberg and everybody associated with the show. Because it robs you of an experience that you need to have. Needless to say, it's well executed. 
this is an obscure season. We go underground for one episode and see kind of a very weird storyline with Princess Carolyn and Todd, which actually ends up being pretty entertaining. We obviously have the governor, the gubernatorial race that I mentioned. We go to Michigan, and not like inner city Michigan, not urban Michigan, but rural Michigan for an episode early in the year. Second episode of the season almost entirely takes place there and is a very, it's a solid and again, another depressing half hour we don't go under the sea this year because you can't do that more than once but we continue to get to know these characters and they get to know each other by the end of it diane kind of finally understands who she is and what she wants mr peanut butter comes to grips with his own imperfect life todd has to deal with being todd princess carolyn again escapes into a daydream world and then tries to pick herself back up because that's what she does And Bojack, stunningly, after a season of despair for him, and actually three years full of despair, really, for him, the final sequence of the fourth season is actually an optimistic sequence that ends in a good feeling, which is certainly unique for Bojack Horseman. And I don't know where we're headed yet past this season. I don't know where they're going to put these characters after this point. Because it seems like the major arc for Bojack came to an end in season four, the one that I mentioned with the relative. It comes to an end, although the relative's still going to be around, he's probably going to have to get back to work in season five, and that's probably going to be good. We we took a sabbatical to some extent from some of the professionalism, even though J.K. Simmons comes back as Lenny Turtletob, and he's probably the best he's ever been in this season. He's really good, and the stuff that they do around him is very, very good. But I'm not exactly sure where we're headed. If I had to rate them, I would say this season was not as good to me as the previous two. But it was deeper than any season we've seen to this point. So it's more a matter of preference and not of quality. Season four, I wasn't as entertained by. But from an emotional standpoint, it was the strongest year. And a lot of shows, in season two they peak, in season three they're still riding that high, and in season four they begin to falter. USA was known for this. White Collar, Burn Notice, all those kinds of shows. They would fall into the same rut after season four. Not that season four would be terrible or anything, but all the tricks were out, so now we're just going to kind of rehash those and change the settings or change a couple of things to make them different. Up the ante, maybe. But we're sort of starting to run out of ideas. And a lot of shows are that way. Not all. Breaking Bad got better every year as it went along. Friday Night Lights second season was by far its worst. Really the only one that you could even consider bad. And probably the best quote of the entire season, of season four, comes from Princess Carolyn when she says, sometimes life is like the second season of Friday Night Lights. You got to push through and hope there's better stuff ahead. That's a microcosm for the entire season and really for the entire series of BoJack, at least after it got out of the gates we got introduced, we got a lot of jokes told, and then we started to move into the meat of what Raphael Bob Waxberg and his team wanted from this show. But the quotes from BoJack Horseman, as great as some of the dialogue is and as funny as it can be, the quotes that you generally remember, at least in season four, the ones that stood out to me, one of them is what's broken in our hearts can never be repaired. BoJack talks about getting off on his own guilt 
not wanting to mope around while life passes him by. We find out a lot about Princess Carolyn's past and what she's had to go through personally, just as we have with Bojack. And we spend a good amount of time with Bojack's mother, Beatrice, as I mentioned. Wendy Malick, who does that voice, who you remember from Just Shoot Me, just as one example. We find out a lot about her past, but we spend a lot of time with her in the present, too. Like, she is an active participant in this season. At least for half of it, as a matter of fact. I would say, because that character is sort of hard to deal with, it makes the episodes a little less watchable as a result. But again, my preference on seasons is not based on the quality of the writing. It's based more upon which ones I found easier and more enjoyable to watch. And season four comes in definitely third in that list, behind two and three. And you can put two and three in whatever order you want. I think two may have been the stronger season, but three had higher points when it was on fire. So season four of BoJack, I would still say is in the A range, probably an A minus. That might be as low as I can go with it. Cause it's still awfully good. Maybe B plus on a bad day. I would give it, but I'm still saying a minus. It's still one of television's best shows. And we'll talk a lot more about season four in detail next week, but I want to give you a t- chance to actually see it. And for those of you that have just fast forwarded for the last, however long 45 minutes, I said, we were going to talk a lot about BoJack Horseman on this show. Well, we just talked a lot about BoJack Horseman on this show. And I hope you enjoyed the fact that we talked a lot about BoJack Horseman on this show. And, you know, I was thinking about it and I was thinking, you know, what am I going to talk about today? In Like when you're trying to make it out and you're just, how many different topics do I have? You know, I'd really like to talk about the Nationals' new album, Sleep Well Beast. National probably my second favorite music act behind only Radiohead. And I've got the vinyl on the way. Actually, I pre-ordered that thing through the American Mary store, but I haven't gotten it yet. And so I haven't gotten to hear it, so I can't really talk about it. So we'll talk about the Nationals album next week. So let's talk about one more thing today. Just two topics, and then I'm going to talk about Veep for just a minute. It, which was originally a mini-series that was about four and a half hours long that aired in 1990. It was based on Stephen King's seminal work. It, the 2017 adaptation hit the big screens today. I screened it a couple of nights ago. And I'm not a big horror movie fan. I'm really not. Like, I, I'm not... It's not that I mind being scared. I don't. I enjoy that just as much as the next person on a short-term basis. But a lot of horror movies fall into cliches and they fall into the same traps. And it's just probably one of my least favorite genres of film. I would much rather see a good drama or something with true suspense than I would Monsters in the Closet or, and I hate gore. And that's also usually a proponent and usually something that you see in in horror films. But it was a book that I read when I was like 10 years old, which is probably not something I should have done. But I bought like three Stephen King books at the same time because I thought, hey, Stephen King, I should probably be reading Stephen King. I'm 10 and I was a big reader and just felt like something that a growing boy should do. So I bought three Stephen King books at the same time. I bought It, I bought The Stand, and I bought Misery, because Misery was coming out around that time in theaters, Kathy Bates and James Caan, which is just a fabulous film and a great book. And I read It, and I think I was attracted more to It than Cujo and things like that, because I thought the clown idea was really interesting. And you get to the end of it, and you're just kind of like, oh, man, really, they did that? Kind of the same thing that you would have felt if Watchmen had done the squid thing at the end of the Zack Snyder film. 
which I still think that film was pretty good. A lot of people try to pan it, but I think they're wrong. It's certainly not as good as Alan Moore's actual graphic novel, but Watchmen is by no means some disaster as a movie. But not being a horror fan, I had to think about it. I was like, am I going to go watch it? I didn't go watch The Dark Tower because I just knew it was going to suck. That was another Stephen King adaptation. And look, Stephen King adaptations through the years, there have been some good ones and some bad ones, and a lot of the ones that have been good have not necessarily been the horror films. Eleven twenty two sixty three from Hulu about a year ago was excellent, and it's out there, and you should check it out. I think you'd like it. Shawshank Redemption is one of the best movies of all time. Green Mile. Very good movie. And actually, you know, when I was writing just kind of my short blurb that I put on Facebook at Jmart100 and then at Twitter at Jmart Outkick, I said this is the best, it is the best Stephen King adaptation since The Shawshank Redemption. You could argue The Green Mile. Because I really like The Green Mile and I've seen it many times. Shawshank to me is on a different level. But when you're looking at a pure Stephen King horror story, a lot of them are shit when they're tried to adapt. Dreamcatcher is one of the worst movies of all time. And I don't know that that story was actually any good either. But, you know, The Running Man and things like that worked, and that really wasn't a horror story either. And we saw Carrie. The original Carrie was good. The remake wasn't. Maximum Overdrive and that craziness and Cujo and Christine and some of that stuff. But it is one that could have sucked really bad. Because there's so much about it that would be hard to depict in a realistic fashion. So how exactly were they going to make this work? Well, they hired Andy Muschietti. And Muschietti is the director. Writers Chase Palmer and Kerry Fukunaga, whose name may ring a bell, as he was one of the instrumental pieces of True Detective, both of yours, but season one is the one that you would care about, I would say. But this was generally a story about a malevolent evil, a monster, who happened to be a clown named Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Of course, you find out there's a lot more to Pennywise the Dancing Clown, but this is one that you could actually see working. And guess what? It worked. They took pieces of Stranger Things. They took pieces of Stand By Me. They took pieces of The Goonies. And then they took pure horror and they wrapped it all together in this nostalgic package set it in 1990 or in the late 80s new kids on the block is featured in the film for example not the actual act they're not live in the film but you hear their music and then you put together a cast of pretty talented kids and you let them go after pennywise the dancing clown And you make it 135 minutes, which on the surface sounds like it's too long, but if you know anything about it, you know how long that book is. Again, I told you that original 1990 effort was four and a half hours long, and it was set in the 60s. In this case, 135 minutes kind of flew by. By the time it was over, like you felt like you had seen it all, but you were by no means tired at the end of the film. Like You just felt like you saw an experience. So for somebody that is not a huge fan of horror in general and did not care for the end of it, the book, I can report to you that the movie is excellent. This is an A-minus horror film, at worst. Super enjoyable, incredibly well-constructed, well-acted, and that's a key because I don't know how many 
instances in pop culture we have of properties being ruined by shitty child acting or by some story involving a kid that wrecks shop. Some folks did not like Iron Man 3, for example, for that very reason. When you spend too much time with a kid, it's usually bad. On TV, it's usually the opposite. Kid gets older, then the show's not cute anymore, and then it begins to fail. But in movies, usually if you're spending a lot of time with the kids, that means the acting sucks. In this case, it's the opposite. These kids are excellent. Finn Wolfhard may be the one that you'll recognize immediately. Plays Mike Wheeler in Stranger Things. Here, he also rides a bike and is a little bit awkward, but this time he's foul-mouthed, and in a sexual context, foul-mouthed, bespectacled member of this group that is sort of you know it's called the losers club officially in the book but in it's not really done so in the movie it's just sort of subtle nods and they call you hear them called losers these kids they're sort of outcast and they all have their own little quirk one of them being a germaphobe one of them being afraid of everything one of them the only female of the group played by sophia lillis beverly marsh is her character being branded via vicious untrue rumors a slut bill denbro who's the leader of kind of the group Jaden lieber he has a major speech impediment sort of unsure of himself at least early in the film and then there's even an outsider who is not really from the area and he happens to be black and there's sort of a nod to the fact that the bullies in the film don't like the fact that he's black. It's not overt, but it's there for you to see. And I think it sort of makes sense because this is unquestionably one of the darkest, meanest is the right word, films I've ever seen. Outside of these kids, who all have their moments of being sort of jerks, but not not for very long stretches. And really, I don't think Beverly ever really becomes a jerk. But all the rest of them have a couple of moments where they could go down the jerk path and usually don't. The bullies in this film, Henry Bowers is the lead, kind of the the head bully. That dude's trying to kill kids. He's not trying to pants you or, you know, put a cherry bomb in a toilet. He's trying to crack your skull with a rock. He is emblazing an initial with a knife on a corpulent boy's stomach. Like, mean stuff. The adults in this film are creepy. The pharmacist that seems to, the older man that seems to have an affinity towards Beverly, who's a you know 15-year-old, and how creepy that is, and her own father, who's a just complete dirtbag, and even Henry Bowers' father, who kind of gives away why Henry Bowers became the monster that he became, no pun intended with the actual monster, but just the human monster that he became, because his dad was an awful human being. And it makes sense within the context of this movie for it to be this mean with almost every character because of this force. It, this evil force that feeds upon fear and negativity and hatred and tries to breed it and tries to divide people and tries to spread misery and has for centuries on a every 27-year basis. So Derry, Maine, the setting, is just an awful place. You meet almost nobody that you like, except for our characters, our kids, that we spend most of the movie with. Luckily, they're talented. 
Luckily, they've got chemistry together. And luckily, they're fun to be around. And you root for all of them. In the same way that you rooted for the Goonies. That's really the example. You root, you root for the kids in Stranger Things as well, but I don't think you get to know them quite as well as you do the kids in It and certainly the kids in the Goonies. But all three of those sets are relevant, as are the foursome in, in uh, Stand By Me. So the kids are good, and that side of the story works. Does the monster work? Hugely. Pennywise is a fantastic villain, which you know if you've ever read it. But the film really does get across how awful, how evil, how nasty and just scary Pennywise the Dancing Clown is. Bill Skarsgård plays the role, and he is frightening. One of the best villains we have seen in a horror film in quite some time is Pennywise. A lasting villain. One people are not going to forget about. It's going to become a piece of pop culture, I think. You're going to start hearing Pennywise mentioned in jokes and things like that that you may never have otherwise. And Bill Skarsgård just nails this role. And the way that they shoot Pennywise, the facial expressions that can go from a maniacal smile to just the most sinister I am about to eat your face off looks to the way that he walks to the way the camera tricks that allow him to kind of shake around and all of this stuff. It's all very effective and everything about this movie, except for the moments of humor that are there to just keep you guessing. And because there's solid dialogue in this film, there are characters that say things, particularly Richie. That's Finn Wolfhard's character. uh, The stranger things actor, Mike Wheeler, that, are just funny repeatedly, and you need them because there is a lot of mean and there's a lot of just nastiness. Within the first five minutes of this film, a kid, a small boy, gets his arm eaten off and gets dragged basically to the equivalent of hell on earth. So it minces no words and it wastes no time getting where it's going. But Pennywise is a formidable and terrifying villain, mentally manipulative powerful just a demon basically on screen and then you've got a lot of kids you you want to root for what else do you need a great villain and a great group of protagonists that you want to spend time with that's all you need and then the end of the movie they make a choice that they didn't that Stephen King didn't make in his book and I think that the movie as a result plays out better if they had made the same choice at the end of it that they did in the original miniseries and certainly how they did in the book. It would not have been as good a film. I think the ending would have elicited eye rolls. And they didn't do it here. And it's a credit to them for doing that. And before the screening ever started, Stephen King came on screen and said he was blown away by this adaptation. He was so thrilled by it. And he was kind of crediting all the people associated with it. If you've seen any articles this week... Stephen King, the quote was, I was not prepared for how good the It adaptation was going to be. Neither was I, Stephen. Like, I thought it would be pretty good, probably. I did not know it was going to be that good. I walked out, and I was very, very satisfied in the experience. And I think you all should go see it if you like that kind of stuff. But know going in what it is. Every second is designed to scare you from the loud creaking doors to the screeches and screams and bellows from the deep to the camera tricks, to the fake scares followed by something jumping out seven seconds after you finally exhale. 
everything is keeping you off kilter. Everything is keeping you on the edge of your seat. I had people next to me jumping, you know, critics next to me jumping. There are definitely some of those cheaper scares, but I think that you need that because people are going to expect that kind of thing, just like they expect the loops in a roller coaster. But the one other thing I want to say about it is it is not a lasting scare. It's a temporary scare, and I think that's good, and that's why I liked it. Something like The Strangers, which to me is the scariest film I've ever seen. And I knew it was going to be when I first saw the trailer because it's plausible. Even if, you know, even even some of the more grounded stuff in it is just totally implausible. You can look at magical realism all you want, but this thing's this is just a horror movie. It's a horror story. And a lot of it is sort of an allegory to the idea that the real evil is in humanity, which, you know, you've seen from The Walking Dead and George R. Romero classics through the years and things like that. But The Strangers was scary because it was, you know, a group of psychopaths that just rolled up on somebody's house and killed them and their family because they answered the door and they got away at the end of it. Conjuring was scary because it was based on some level of truth and it was more of a anticipation thing as opposed to monsters jumping out every five seconds. This was a roller coaster ride. It is an amusement park ride. You go in there, you get the fright, you get the clown, you see the blood spurting from the sink, you know, you see people being eaten and things like that, but you're not going to walk out and need to check under your car because you know that stuff's not real and you can separate it. It takes too much cognitive dissonance to believe in the frights that it provides. So then it's just an experience. It's just fun. Like, did Freddy really scare you as a kid? He never scared me because I knew that wasn't real. That's not terrifying to me. Serial killers are terrifying. Some dude that infects your dreams, wears a bad sweater. No, I'm good with that. Dude with the uh, blades for hands. Really good character. Wes Craven's awesome. Robert England's great. But let's calm down. One description I saw said this version of it is basically the Goonies if it were directed and helmed by Wes Craven. God rest his soul. I think that's a really good analogy for it. You're not going to be scared after you leave. You're going to be scared and just having a ball during that 135 minutes with whoever you're there with. And you're going to leave and you're going to talk about it and laugh about the jokes that Richie made and the off-color comments he made about people's moms. And and you're going to talk about Pennywise and then some of the stuff that happened in the movie. But you're not going to be scared two days later. I didn't go home and turn on a lamp. After I watched The Strangers, I turned on every lamp in my house. Because that was real. This was a story. Damn good story. An A-minus story. The best Stephen King adaptation since the Shawshank Redemption kind of story. And that's all I got to say about that. Finally, Veep is coming to an end next year. David Mandel took over for Armando Iannucci after season four. And then last year, actually in Mandel's first year at the helm, it was probably the best year of Veep that we had seen. And that's a high bar because seasons two and three were both just spectacular. This year started a little slow for me, and then it sort of rounded into form. Turned out to be a much better experience than Silicon Valley's year was. And you just, it was never necessarily about the story with Veep. It was about these people, these one-liners, these insults, these interactions. And it still is. But Julia Louis-Dreyfus told The Hollywood Reporter yesterday that this next season for Veep is going to be the last. I guess she's tired of winning Emmys. And which she probably will pick up another one coming up here in about a month and a half. 
Veep coming to an end to me, it's bittersweet because I'm sad to see it end, but I'm happy to see it end in the case that when it leaves, we're either going to be left wanting more or we're going to be immensely satisfied with the experience we had. Modern Family's been on four years too long at least. The Office was two years at least past its prime, maybe three. Most shows go far too long. How I Met Your Mother was never-ending and then had a very just poor ending to its story, poor conclusion to its story. Big Bang, after about season five, we get it. Now we're just waiting for whatever the end is if you're still watching that show. Veep is going to go out and we're going to feel like we saw what we needed to see from it or we're going to wish we had more and that's exactly what you always want in entertainment. You want the audience to wish that there was more of what you gave them but you also want that to exist in a in a world in which you gave them a lot. Like Firefly got one season and we were all left wanting more of that show but in that case that's not what you want if you're Joss Whedon or all the folks associated with that show because you didn't put enough out there. You weren't able to actually get your vision out there. But many shows go on far too long. We talked about the decline in quality when we were talking about BoJack earlier and how it's somehow still really doing well, deservedly, because of the quality of the writing. But that there are many more examples of shows that fall apart around season four. Veep's got one more year. It's going to leave on top. It's probably going to win another boatload of awards. And then all those guys and gals are going to go on to do other stuff. Some of them, or most of them, already are. And then we're going to have this wonderful memory of this show that when it originally premiered, critics hated it and thought that, oh, this is not very good for about at least most of the first season, I would say. I liked it from the beginning. But most critics were not saying a lot of great stuff about Veep in the first year. And then the second year came around, they finally got on board and figured out what it was going to be. And we have 10, at least, characters that we're never going to forget from this show. It's some of the great insults of all time on television. Some of the nastiest dialogue, but some of the funniest stuff as well. Per capita jokes, nothing better ever in the history of TV than Veep. So it's sad to see Veep end, but I think it's also a positive because... You could say it's time. Maybe they they feel like they've gotten as much out of these characters as they can. Maybe they're ready to go do something else. But we're going to have such a treasure left behind to be able to go back and experience you know, these six years again. And I think that's all you can really ask for. I don't know that Silicon's going to be remembered that way because it's already sort of the same show week after week. Veep is relying upon funny writing and great one-liners more than a story. So what happens within the story, it just moves along the insults. I care a little bit about the story, but it's not necessary for me to enjoy Veep. These people are, and they've given me so much to enjoy. And we're going to experience this final season together next year, and we're going to love it. And then when it comes to a close, we're going to look back and say, damn, Veep might be one of the top three to five comedies ever, ever. And that's priceless. And it's a credit to Julia and to Tony Hale and to Matt Walsh and to Anna Klumsky and Gary Cole. And I could just keep going. Tim Simons. I mean, nobody really knew who Timothy Simons was. Jonah Ryan's put that dude on the map and he's a, just a great dude, great Twitter follower as well, or Twitter follow as well. This show has given us a lot to like, a lot of people that we didn't know as well that we know better now, shown the improv chops of some of the best, and we're going to miss Veep. 
but we're also going to respect and appreciate what we got. And I think that it is much better to leave too soon than to overstay your welcome because the final memory needs to be a positive one. And I think Veep is going to have that. This week, go forth. Watch BoJack Horseman. Next week, we'll go into detail in Season 4. We'll talk about that relative in more detail. We'll talk about all of the things that happened in that season. Might talk a little bit more about the Deuce, although it's just a premiere that's airing this Sunday, and it's already on demand, as I told you last week. So if you have not seen that, go watch that, and then you can actually come back and we'll talk about it. Or you can come back and listen to last week's podcast and you'll hear us talk about it for 20, 25 minutes. We'll also talk about the Nationals album uh, next week as well, plus the fall fall season. The Orville starts on Sunday night on Fox. I've seen it. It's not very good. It's basically just a Star Trek tribute from a Star Trek super fan, and Seth MacFarlane's not a particularly great actor, and the show's just sort of, eh, it's all right. I've seen some other stuff from the fall. We'll talk about what's good and what's not. You're the Worst came back this week, one of the best comedies on TV. You should definitely watch that. Better Things, Pamela Adlon's show is coming back. Better Things, opening a season two is fabulous. And that show is vastly underrated. And it's another thing that you need to put on your list. Got other stuff coming from Netflix. All sorts of TV to talk about as we move into the fall and start to discuss how last season's ended on some of your favorite shows. We'll talk This Is Us as well. One of, obviously, TV's biggest, NBC's biggest by far. We'll discuss how season two is shaping up and how season one ended and whether or not this this is us thing might be another empire where after season one, I said, we might have already seen the best of empire. Do you think we've seen the best of this is us? That's a tease for next week. A lot of Bojack today, a lot of it today. I suggest you watch both. Tweet me at jmartoutkick. Email me at jmartclone at gmail.com. By the way, I know I have not written that penultimate piece on Game of Thrones and other seasons. Life got in the way, got busy. It's going to happen. It's going to happen next week. We will discuss what I write next week on this very show. My apologies. I know there were some folks who really were interested in that and have written me or even a couple of them that saw me in person that mentioned it. Just haven't gotten to it, honestly. I want to put the time to it that's appropriate. So continue to be on the lookout for that. Also, another piece of news that came out uh, last week is I am adding my pro wrestling and MMA coverage that i've been doing at sb nation for the last several years of course many of you know i worked in pro wrestling for 10 years and have written about it for 13 or 14 off and on i have left sb nation and accepted the opportunity to write about it at outkick exclusively so there will be a preview for no mercy coming up there's going to be a piece coming out about ron uh, roman reigns and john cena next week Plenty of wrestling content, plenty of television and film content. I've got some screenings coming up, motion picture stuff that you can also be on the lookout for on the website. The website's exploding. Go get that VIP, $99. Get that MSC SPN shirt that's moving like crazy right now. Pray for everybody in Florida, everyone certainly in the Caribbean uh, during the throes of Irma. If you're listening to this on the weekends and you happen to be down there and stuck, my thoughts are with you. My prayers are with you. Literally, that's not me saying that. I actually pray at night in specifics. And without question, all you guys are on my mind. And if this is bringing you some entertainment or something to think about during a tough time, then I've done my job. 
Outkick the culture. God bless. See you next week. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.